0: You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Claire Lehman. Well, my guest today, Claire Lehman. Claire, thank you very much for giving us some time.
1: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Now, the Sydney Morning Herald named you in their 10 Aussies who shook the world in tech and media in 2018. You're also described as the leader or a leader of the intellectual dark web which, of course, is a description for a group of thinkers bucking against political correctness and defending evidence-based and open intellectual inquiry. You've been asked to speak in the US, uh, indeed, uh, in Europe. Uh, You've written for prestigious publications such as The Guardian, Harvard University's Kennedy Law Review and Scientific American. You've also started one of the best, and according to many on the left, one of the most notorious online magazines in the world called Quillette. Now the aim of Quillette is to expose ideas to serious scrutiny, serious examination. Could you tell us a little about your background and what led you to take such an interest in ideas and trends?
1: Okay, um, so my background is um is an s- interesting one. I started off as an art student. I had an interest in English literature. I found back in the early 2000s that uh, English studies had been taken over by postmodern theories, and I was not um, particularly interested in studying postmodern theories. So I switched to psychology. And uh, I studied psychology and became interested in the topic of sex differences or gender differences. And um, I became interested in the battle of ideas because um, the the psychological study of sex differences is quite uh, controversial and politicized within the academy. And so I read both sides of the debate and I could see how a a very important area of scientific inquiry, particularly important to women, um, can get stymied and blocked and obstructed because of politicization of scientific inquiry. So that's how I became interested in ideas and that's one of the motivating factors behind Quillette.
0: So the idea that you would politicise science, which is meant to be about reason, objectivity, pursuing the evidence, setting up a, a question and then seeking the answers to it. Are you in effect saying that science can be distorted to suit political ends and is being distorted to that end?
1: Well, my interest was in science being stopped or slowed for political ends. So the when it comes to the study of gender differences, there have been activists or advocates in the academy who have said that to study any of the differences between men and women is a sexist thing to do. Just merely asking the question is a sexist question. Now, from my point of view, all questions should be allowed to be asked. There is no such thing as a question that can't be asked. Um, so it was very problematic to me to think about science being stopped or halted for political or moral reasons. Um, and that's an that's underlying theme of Quillette. We're very much about open inquiry and defending open inquiry and allowing people to ask any questions that they want to ask.
0: You mentioned you, that you were not interested in a sort of postmodernist yeah. lens for looking at the world. Yeah. Now, postmodernism sort of sort of has certainly taken over in the latter part of the last century and up to now in terms of the way that we see things. What does it mean to you, though, to say that you don't want to see the world through a postmodernist lens?
1: Well, I consider myself to be a positivist. That is, I believe there is such a thing as objective reality. We can discover it with the scientific method. Um, there is such a thing as reality. I view the postmodernist or poststructuralist philosophy as... Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to characterise simply, but they question the idea that there is such a thing as objective truth. Lang- uh, language shapes reality. Um, One can't discover um, truth through the scientific method Um, and that to me does not help us uh, understand more about the world. It doesn't help us um, navigate towards the future and I think it creates more confusion than clarity and so I'm all about using the methodologies and the epistemologies that help us understand the world and um, seek a better future rather than creating chaos and confusion, which is what I think postmodernism does.
0: I heard someone say recently that ambivalence in language is the postmodernist's best friend.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So it's very hard to have a rational debate Mm. if you consistently move the meaning of words around so that no one knows what the rules are anymore.
1: Yeah, and we see this... Yeah, I mean there are all sorts of language games that are played and um, there's a phenomenon called concept creep where um, something, the definition of a word changes over time and you don't know what definition you're using anymore so once upon a time the definition of racism or sexism was to discriminate against someone, uh, a person of colour or just to discriminate against a woman. Now, the the terms mean something quite different. Um, I gave a speech last year at the Centre for Independent Studies where I read a few abstracts from papers from a discipline called Critical Race Theory in which they argue that ignoring someone's skin colour and treating people the same is itself racist. So the, the, the meanings of the words have been completely inverted but it's the same word and so it, it creates all of this chaos and confusion because you never know what people are actually referring to and there are all of these kind of competing and conflicting meanings and it's a mess.
0: Some of the words around that are bandied around a lot now seem to be have meanings attached to them that are almost impossible to me. Diversity is one, inclusiveness yeah. is another one.
1: Yeah, that's right. They, they don't seem
0: to mean real diversity at all.
1: That's right. Absolutely. And you're only
0: included if you actually fit the mindset of the people who are advocating that inclusiveness.
1: Yeah, diversity is an interesting one because it doesn't mean diversity of thought. It doesn't mean often doesn't mean diversity of class or socioeconomic status. It means diversity in how you look. Um, and but it's it's often it, it's often used as just a like a catch-all word to mean all of the things that are supposed to be good uh, without, without any real precision about mm. what people actually mean by that word.
0: The interesting thing is that a lot of these social agitators is, would say that they are following in the footsteps of the civil rights movement in America. Mm. So you go back to Martin Luther King
1: mm-hmm.
0: because he was saying, I don't want my children to be judged by the colour of their skin. I want them to be judged by the content of their character. It seems to me that this idea that somehow or other a lot of the social activism that we see today is following in the noble footsteps yeah. of, of of that movement mm. really pretty superficial.
1: I think that's completely wrong. I think Martin Luther King was an inheritor of the Enlightenment and he, like uh, the early feminists like Mary Wollstonecraft, just wanted to extend Enlightenment principles of equality of opportunity to... Black people in America, and that's what uh, Mary Wollstonecraft wanted to do for women—just extending, um, you know, equality before the law, equality of opportunity to um, groups who had been overlooked throughout history. What we're seeing now is a rejection of Enlightenment principles. It's not about equality of opportunity. It's uh, identity politics is about ranking people in a hierarchy—a yeah.
0: new with- aristocracy.
1: Exactly, which is pre—it's medieval in a in a way because it rejects the enlightenment that everyone is created equal, um, and the problem with identity politics, whether it's um, white nationalist identity politics or um, grievance-based sort of racial, you know, uh, you know, anti-Western identity politics, is that it ranks people. People are not considered equal. They're either um, given status according to their victimhood or they're given status according to some kind of um, inherited skin tone, uh, it, it's it's completely regressive and it, it harks back to pre-enlightenment days.
0: It seems to me that it's very important that we we try and expose this wherever we can because mm. again, to go back to that era, it's not so very long ago on the scale of human history that At the same time as Martin Luther was talking like that, you had Kennedy saying, I know they're hackneyed, but, you know, ask not what uh, your country can do for you but what you can do for your country. We've turned that on its head. We've turned the idea of citizenship, or we've largely rejected it, I think, Mm -hmm. because in the name of identity politics, we now say you've been mistreated. Yeah. You have things that you are rightly aggrieved about, even if you hadn't heard about them, Mm. and your country owes you.
1: Yeah, yeah, and
0: the problem with it is that I wonder whether victimhood, being a victim, is ever a really good place to be.
1: Well, certainly not psychologically. So psychologists will tell you. I mean, Jordan Peterson's famous example of a psychologist um, explaining that having a victimhood mentality is bad for one's agency, sense of agency and purpose. But I mean, it's it's a tradition. It's been known for decades in psychology that to internalize a victimhood identity is very bad for one's own functioning in the world and it should be avoided. And and the problem is that we've got these political movements who are which are encouraging mindsets that are known to be harmful yeah. and among young people. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 very damaging.
0: So you reach this very valuable point of realisation in your journey and decide to do something serious about it. I mean, Quillette is, you know, really quite an endeavour. Uh, you've reached an astonishing number of people. Yeah. Tell us a bit about how it works and how people react.
1: Um, well, we're lucky in that there is a, a, a lot of people out there who have interesting things to say and um, didn't, don't have access to mainstream media sort of places. And one of the secrets of our success is that we don't force writers to sort of dumb down their work yeah. um, and, and reduce it to tabloid a tabloid level of writing. So we allow people to write long form articles. Some of them can be quite technical. Some of them quite, can be quite in depth, but there's enough um, erudite readers around the world to give us a sizeable market. Um, so that's that's been a one aspect of our success. And although there is some, we get some pushback and some criticism on social media particularly, the response to our work has been overwhelmingly positive.
0: And I would think encouraging for a lot yes. of people who are
1: yep.
0: looking for. I think I heard you say in an earlier conversation that, you're amazed at the hunger out there yeah. for high-quality content and thinking.
1: Yes, there's yeah. a tremendous demand, um, and I think I, I think it's about going global because there's yeah. there's people in Australia, there's people in Canada, there's people in America, the UK, across Europe, mm. and. There might not be enough people just within Australia to sustain a project like Quillette on its mm. own. But if you go global, there's pl- there's more than enough readers and subscribers to support the project financially and just and build a community around it. Mm. Um, there are one thing I've discovered through my work with Quillette is that there's there's a great hunger out there, but also that many people are also quite isolated because they might be the only independent thinker in their Mm. workplace or in their classroom or in their, their little community, wherever it is, and they're the only one who's sort of questioning and wondering what's going on in the world. But then they find an outlet because they find other independent thinkers and it's it's a tremendous service for those individuals because they don't feel alone anymore.
0: Well, it's a happy sort of meeting between what you're doing and what I'm trying to do with these conversations. Yeah. Uh, only last week in Sydney,
1: yeah. a
0: very fine young man. I and mean, he was an exceptionally fine person, if you're still allowed to say those things.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> and he just said to me, he'd listened to all of the conversations, about 35 of them now. Yeah. And he talked about how isolated he felt mm. at university and subsequently in the workplace.
1: Yeah.
0: He said he felt Able to own his own views because he'd heard people on these conversations, the very sort of thing we're doing now, saying yeah. it's actually all right to think independently. It's all right to actually think moral relativism
1: yeah.
0: is a weak doctrine. Yeah. Uh, it's all right to have serious doubts about victimhood yeah. politics. Now, you and I would both agree there are victims, there are people with real yeah. grievances. Yeah. But, but Luther was, of course, trying to say, well, you know, let's find a universalist solution where yeah. we bring those who are disadvantaged and what have you into full citizenship. Yeah. not create some sort of new aristocracy. That's yes. the precisely the thing yeah. we're trying to end. We're trying yes. to recognise the worth and dignity of all yes. and of each.
1: Yes, that's right. And that's an inherently Christian idea as well, that every human life has an inherent dignity. And
0: yet there are so many now who want to shut down debate. You must run into that. People who just scream hysterically mm. without engaging with what your writers and contributors are saying. They just want to shut it down because it doesn't suit them.
1: Yeah, there is a certain um, mindset which believes that we've already we've already answered all of the important questions. Um, all of the all of the important moral and political questions have already been sorted out, maybe by someone like Karl Marx or something, and that all we need to do is like reorder society, and everything will be perfect. And that. Uh, that minds—that's an extremely closed-minded mindset, and that's what I come up against. This idea, people—you know—people who have this idea that we don't need to ask questions anymore, and we've yeah, got it that all. That we worked. found the solutions. Yeah, and that all of the, the important moral questions are sorted out. There's no—there shouldn't be any debate. We know all of the answers, and to me, that's crazy. Uh, it's so self-evidently not true. It's never been true in history. Um, but unfortunately, uh, that mindset is kind of prevalent at the moment within certain communities and even within academia, which is paradoxical because pa- academia is where you're meant to ask all of the questions. Um, but unfortunately, that's where we're at.
0: Just on that issue of, of, of the universities and of academia, how have they reacted? What sort of reactions do you get from them in Australia?
1: The, the reaction is more split Uh, according to department so there are department academics from the humanities generally dislike Quillette and what we do even though we're publishing literary essays and book reviews and we publish poets and artists and um, write uh, other creative people Um, but it's because we reject the some of the fashionable theories that are um, dominant within the humanities, so we reject post-structuralism, we reject we reject postmodernism. Because I have a scientific background, um, I'm very committed to having evidence evidence-based arguments, um, mm. uh, and that doesn't always sit well with yeah. certain academics of certain schools. Um, but I mean, many academics love us as well, so it's, it's mixed.
0: Jonathan Haidt's work around this, uh, if you like, politicisation of the academy and the fact that over the last 20 years in America in particular, 25 years, it really has moved yes. almost overwhelmingly mm. and not just in the humanities yeah. to left of centre through to very Hardly, left of centre yeah. and the almost total squeezing out of people uh, of a different perspective. And yet you do get this feeling of, of great smugness, frankly, from a lot of academics who say, look, we've resolved the great issues. We needn't go back over those, those matters again. In the end, I'm a pragmatic person because I've lived in rural Australia all your life. You've got to find things that work. So I say to myself, if it's working so well, why are we so divided as a people? How have we come to be so distrustful? Why is it that we have horrendous levels of anxiety and depression amongst young people and very, very high levels of attempted self-harm. Mm. How can people justify the position that so many of them do adapt, that we've resolved all the great issues, everything's all right? I think the challenge is out there. I don't think the narrative is anywhere near as convincing as they'd have us believe.
1: Yes, and one of the the biggest problems with the um, political skew within the academy that Jonathan Haidt talks about is its impact on scholarship so if everybody is of one political persuasion they'll find the same questions important such as you know climate change or some kind of um, gender disparities but there are also many other important questions some which you just brought up like uh teenage depression and anxiety, um, people feeling lost and like they have no meaning in their lives. There are a multitude of questions that are also very important but they if everybody within the academy is thinking the same way, they're going to miss those questions because uh, they're not tuned into them. So the problem with having such a polit- politicised academy is that all of this... Um, Research is not being done, which we need, because you know these problems are escalating, and we need smart people to work on them and work them out. Um, and that, and to me, that's the the biggest problem with what's happening in the academy at the moment: good r- good research questions not being answered.
0: Why is it do you think that much of, particularly in Australia, we've seen the row over the Ramsey Centre? And I have mm-hmm. to say many of the universities, you know, protestations stations that will interfere with their independence and so forth mm. don't sound very convincing to me. Sure. I mean, you really get the impression that they don't want sort of classic history, the yes. great canon yes. taught. Yes. We seem to loathe our own cultural underpinnings. We mm. don't want to teach them. We only want them disparaged.
1: Yes. Yeah, so that's that's a really important question, I think, for our civilization. Um, there was a shift in the 1960s and the 1970s um, thanks to the influence of the Frankfurt School. So uh, theorists such as MACUSA, Adorno, um, Horkheimer, a bunch of other guys. And then
0: started uh, in Germany in the 1920s.
1: Well, the Frankfurt Yeah. School. And then they moved to America during mm. the period of the war. Yeah. And their theory, the critical theory is not, I mean, it's not a bad theory in small doses and it's simply this idea that um, uh, it's not enough to understand how society works. One has to also try and change it. it. It's not such a, a bad concept in small doses, but the problem we have today is that entire university departments are dominated by this theory and then when you bring in the French uh, philosophers such as Foucault who questioned the very um, concept of truth um, you get uh, academics and entire um, traditions within certain um, fields where the very foundations of our civilization are are questioned and undermined. So what you'll find in, um, I mean, there are, of course, history departments which are still doing empirical history and are bringing in data and doing all sorts of solid work. But we've also got a situation where there are very strong dominant narratives which say that, Western civilization is inherently exploitative. It's um, ransacked other cultures in Africa and and in the East. Um, everything about our civilization has harmed other peoples, indigenous peoples. There's actually uh, there's no pride or um, recognition of any of the achievements that we've made that Western civilization has made. And so we're getting an, an entire generation of young people. Um, coming out with this very distorted view of history and who are seeing their own society and their own history in a very negative light. And I don't think that is healthy at all for a civilization.
0: Surely it's important to remember that the Frankfurt School and from the 1920s and, in fact, the Italian Gramsci as well, Mm. who was writing in the 1930s, one-time friend of Mussolini, falls out, goes to prison, dies, his works are largely forgotten, but then they're discovered again in the unhappy and turbulent 60s in many ways they were motivated by a frustration that the workers had not arisen and overthrown Western capitalism and yes. installed communism. Yes. If the workers weren't going to do it, then perhaps it should be done through academia and yes. reaching the young people. Mm. Under, if you like, that's where the term I think cultural Marxism probably comes from, attack mm. the culture, ensure that it's no longer seen as worthy as having delivered good You know, no one would ever say it was perfect, but, I mean, I wonder whether any cultures have ever really developed personal freedom in the way that the West has, and yet our young people are being subjected because it filters out of the universities into academia, into uh, the the teaching professions, into the media, now into the boardrooms. Um, I wonder whether, in fact, it equips people to form balanced perspectives on what works and what doesn't work.
1: Yeah, so my... The, the thing that frightens me the most about critical theory, which has become this dominant explanatory theory within a great portion of academia, is that it doesn't allow for neutrality or impartiality. Yeah. So it forces, when you say it's not enough to understand the world, the point is to change it, it forces one to take a position, take to, take, to pick a side. And then what happens is when academics are advocates or activists, Um, they see people who are trying to remain impartial or neutral as the enemy. They haven't picked a side, they're fence sitters, they're the enemy. And so it's really frightening because unless we have a space where one can be apolitical or neutral or impartial, we lose our ability to analyze things objectively, we lose the ability to have fair procedures, I mean, imagine the court system, the justice system, if we all just had to pick a side without understanding the evidence. You know, imagine being a person on a jury and you haven't even looked at the evidence, but you've got to decide whether someone's guilty or not guilty. I mean, we'd be living in the dark ages again. But this is what this theory is doing. And we're training the younger generations to think in this way, which is what scares me the most.
0: Well, I agree. Although there's cause for great hope. Yeah. Uh, there's an enormous appetite amongst younger people, yes. I think, for, for ideas, for being able to explore these things properly. A young Australian said to me the other day, very, very bright young man, and he was at one of our best recognised universities studying commerce and law, and he just said to me, 80% of the people in my classes believe they're fed a lot of ideologically driven stuff that does not bear examination but yep. they play the game to get through.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: If I were an academic hearing that, and I was concerned for decency and objectivity and professional integrity, I'd be concerned.
1: Yeah. No, I think that the universities are not doing themselves any favors because there, there will be, there will, they will reach a tipping point where enough people are disillusioned and alienated and dissatisfied um, to. And and they will politicize them so politicize themselves so much that um, they'll lose funding, because I mean, the the institution of the university gets its prestige and its authority and its funding, on the premise that they're seeking truth and they're providing accurate knowledge, and um, the taxpayers' money is not going to waste. If they continue down the path that they are on at the moment, the public will get fed up and their, their funding will dry out, potentially. Mm. Um,
0: I think one of the great problems in Australia has been the breakdown of trust in our institutions. Up until now, our universities have remained, remained quite trusted. Yes. But I think they're on thin ice. I think there's an, a, an emerging awareness that in many ways they're not committed to equipping the next generation properly uh, and in a challenging way. Do you think we've got the disease as badly in Australia as they've got in Europe and America or uh, not as badly? How do you think I we rate?
1: I don't think it's quite as bad. Um, and there, are, we have a few protective factors in Australia, such as um, the university's been quite uh, open and egalitarian. We don't have this system of having the Ivy Leagues where people have to pay an arm and a leg just to get in. And then the students have extraordinary powers to sort of get professors fired because they're paying so much money and the administration needs to, you know, keep the customer happy. We're sort of protected in a way um, from some of the student, the crazy, the crazy protests, student protests that we've seen in America. I think certainly some disciplines and some departments have been completely corrupted, but the university itself. Is probably in 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 not a dire situation, and um, I think I think we can, you know, it's it's not so bad that things can't be reformed. Um, But when my children are older, I will definitely advise them to avoid certain subjects because they're just a waste of time. Yeah, yeah unfortunately.
0: <laughs> Tell me about our national broadcaster. It claims it's politically neutral. Yeah. They've just undertaken a major exercise talking to Australians about what they want. And they mm. come back and they said well Australians don't want to talk about politics as much. But I noticed nearly all of the people that they've got now that they've set up to run their new programs in light of that information are left of centre really, they, they, they seem to be a conservative free zone by and large Yeah. Uh, and yet they're paid to reflect, I think, a diversity of views, a genuine diversity of views. Mm. How, do, how do you get on with the ABC? How do you see there?
1: Well, I'm not as critical of the ABC as some people but I, I, know, I definitely notice what you describe, uh, diversity but lack of diversity. What I think the ABC needs to do is get more... Um, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds in, so having diversity of class, having more um, perspectives from rural, rural yeah. Australia. Yeah. Um, I think I, I see a bubble and it's an urban middle-class bubble being represented most on the ABC. Now, maybe that's their viewers, um, but they're, they're meant to be representing all of Australia. So we really yeah. need a little bit more diversity. They
0: do get a lot of our money to do that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, that, and that's the thing, if you don't have class diversity and if, you, if you're only drawing from an urban population, it will be predominantly left-wing because the urban middle-class is left-wing. That's just how it is today, Um, whereas uh, more working-class people have sort of shifted more to the right. We've seen this great realignment. And so, yeah, and it really is the responsibility of institutions like the ABC to not alienate rural Australians and working-class Australians and conservative Australians and bringing everyone in together to have a conversation. And they should be able to do that.
0: Claire, let's talk about quillette. Firstly, what's the word? Where did you get the word? the
1: name? Um, well, Colette is a word for a wicker off-cutting right. um, that you plant into the ground yeah. and which grows into a tree. Right. And so I wanted a name that could convey this idea that if you have an idea and you write it down in an essay, it can change the world. Right. Yeah. yeah,
0: pen is mightier than the sword.
1: Exactly. Think
0: of some of the great essays down and statements in words that have changed the world.
1: Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And so my um, goal when I first started, and it still is, is to inspire people to get their ideas out of their head and onto, onto paper or onto the computer screen and get them out into the world because our ideas can change the world. Um, and so I thought Quillette um, was a good metaphor for that.
0: Great. Well, to whet people's appetites, a couple of your favourite essays that people have contributed that you think people, uh, that you'd love people to be aware of and go and have a look at.
1: Okay. Um, There's a great one uh, where a former social justice warrior who used to mob people on social media wrote about what happened to him when he got mobbed and then he reflected on his own behaviour and he realised... how erroneous he had been in his ways with, like, mobbing and attacking people on social media. There's a that, that article is called I Was the Mob Before the Mob Came to Me. So that's a good one to have right. a look at. I Was the
0: Mob Before the Mob Came to Me. Yeah, Great. Before the yep. Mob Came
1: to Me. Yep. Yep. That's a good one. There's uh, a few articles by a young African-American writer called Common Hughes. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the best one is called The Racism Treadmill. That's outstanding. Um, Everyone should go and have a look at that. Uh, There's an interview I did with Camille Paglia. Yeah. yeah. Who I love. uh, And that was a great honour for me to interview her. Um, And then there are some other really important stories, uh, first-person stories, where people have um, told the story of what has happened to them when they have been unfairly attacked or railroaded in some way. So... Um, one is by Toby Young, um, called The Public Humiliation Diet, where he talks about how he survived um, when he his world came crashing down, when the mob came for him. Um, but there are so many, I could keep going um, on and on. But yeah, I, I'm really proud of the fact that we've given people who have been ostracized in some way or who have been sort of expelled from polite society a venue to tell their stories and to um, find each other. And, and and a lot of people who have been somehow mobbed or had, had their careers damaged or destroyed have formed a little community through their contribu- contributions to Quillette, which is really quite special.
0: Maybe we need to relearn some lessons about doing unto others as we'd have them do unto us.
1: Absolutely. And it's a... It's an ugly part of human nature, but it has a long history. If yeah. you think of people being clapped in the stocks mm-hmm. and having um, food thrown at them, we've got a long history of humiliating people in public, um, uh, going after individuals in mobs because there's some ugly part of our nature that enjoys it, that gets a thrill out of it, um, and it's it was and. And still is a great achievement of our civilization to sort of cut against that, develop social norms and laws and institutions that cut against that part of our human nature. But we're seeing those norms erode erode at the moment.
0: And my final point out of that is that uh, I think you and I are both committed to doing everything. We we have family, we have young ones. We want them to inherit the most civil society they yeah. possibly can. Yeah. But I've heard you say that the old left-right definition doesn't work so well anymore. We need to take into account now the age differences, the generational differences, and particularly in the context of climate change we're seeing the emergence of, if you like, the substitution of a fair bit of emotion and heckling for calm, reason, debate. Sure. I've never seen that sort of heat and emotion solve Mm. many problems. Mm. How do we understand this emerging problem of intergenerational, I won't say warfare, but certainly pretty high tension? Yeah. How dare you?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't um, often, I mean, the the left-right di- divide can be useful, but it's often too simplistic for what we're talking about today. And I often find the di- the access of authority versus liberty sometimes more useful. And I think what we're seeing today with the left is if you think of, if I think about my own parents and back when they were young in the 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of focus on liberty If yeah. among for the left, you know, mm. liberty from um, social conservatism and so on and so forth. And and free speech was a huge part of what it Meant to be a leftist, yeah, and family
0: values, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Traditional family values. They were fierce defenders. Sure. Of mum, dad, and the kids.
1: Yeah. Well, the you know um, that's part of defending the working workers is to defend working families, but I think the shift what we've seen is a shift towards more authoritarian leftism rather than uh, liberal leftism, and so I find that. Uh, liberal leftists are really easy to get along with and to talk to and debate with and they're happy to have debates over any of these topics or or any topic at all but it's the authoritarians who are not open to debate and unfortunately the kind of progressivism that we're seeing in younger people today and that is being taught within universities is of the more authoritarian strain and and that is um, Unnerving, and one thing that concerns me is how it gets reinforced by social media. Um, So social media is this great engine for confirmation bias. Yeah, right. So it's really easy to find people who agree with you a hundred percent on every single issue. Um, So it's I think it's really easy for young people to get into these little echo chambers where they're reinforcing each other. And then once they come um, across someone who they disagree with in the real world, they're not equipped to be able to handle that disagreement. So they go straight for the ad hominem, straight for the appeal to emotion, and um, it's really not a constructive situation.
0: Claire, given that we're, you know, I think we would both say it's incredibly important to try and respect and understand one another, Mm -hmm. you said some very interesting things about your own political positioning uh, and how you see your interaction in, in, in the public sphere. Mm. Can you tell us a little about your own ideology for want of a better word, if that's not too personal?
1: Sure. Um, well I don't have I don't really have a package of political beliefs that is coherent enough to put me either on the left or the right. I just believe in foundational principles right. such as freedom of speech, open inquiry and due process. I think that would probably make me a classical liberal, but I think before we have debates about policies, we need to at least agree on some fundamental principles. And a lot of what um, animates me at the moment is trying to defend those fundamental principles. I think they're essential for Mm. civil democratic society. And if we lose those, everything crumbles. Um, And then my own politics, I would probably have to describe myself as centrist because I'm conservative on some issues, progressive on some others. So, um, yeah, it depends on the issue, yeah.
0: Yeah, a previous guests have made uh, diverse observations about the freedoms but most would say you can't unbundle them. They belong together. Freedom sure. of conscience, belief, religion, speech and association, yes. including the right not to associate, which we yes. all do. Yes. But it's most simple, we do it when we decide who we'll have dinner with. Yes. And who we won't have dinner with. Yeah. But it's an important issue, I think, because um, it does lie at the heart of our ability to find our way forward. I think that commitment to those essential freedoms and to open inquiry around them and yeah. utilising them.
1: And I see them as nonpartisan. I mean, yeah. Above free, free speech is for everybody. Yeah. Due process is for everybody. Open inquiry is for everybody. It's not just for the right and it's not just for the left, it's for all, all of us.
0: It's critical for us to find our way forward. In fact, I would argue the greater the differences, the more committed we need to be,
1: Yes. if you
0: like, even in a tough-minded way, to say I will defend these freedoms and respect the other person's right Yes. to push back, to that's, argue, to question.
1: That's a very good point. We need uh, liberalism if we're going to have a pluralistic society, which we do.
0: Probably more pluralistic than ever.
1: Yes, So exactly. perhaps the,
0: the need for civility mm. and respect in debate is greater than ever.
1: Absolutely.
0: At a very time when it's being diminished. Yes. Claire, that's fantastic. I admire what you do enormously. Thank you. Thanks. I think we owe you a great debt. The Sydney Morning Herald got it right. Uh, you're making a great impact. Thank you. Uh, and... I really do, for those who hear this conversation, say go and have a look and get engaged and that's the key word, I think, engage. Let's yes. drop the hype uh, and, and the emotion and let's rejoice in the fact that we have a shared humanity and we can, in thrashing out ideas and engaging, find a better way forward.
1: Yes. Yep. Thank you, John. Thanks Thank for you. having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, please visit johnanderson.net.au.